Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, which happens to be the same text we were in last Lord's Day. I think we will finish this portion of Acts this morning. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. The conclusion of this chapter, and really the conclusion of this event known in church history now as Pentecost. Acts 2, 42 to 47. And when you arrive there, if you are able, because this is the Word of God, and you are the people of God on the Lord's Day, would you please stand for the hearing and the receiving of God's Word. Beginning in verse 42, Luke writes as he is carried along by God's Spirit these words. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. And had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings. And distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, Day by day, those who were being saved. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. The previous church where I had the privilege of pastoring in Gatesville, Texas for just over 12 years began as a church plant just under six years prior to the time I became the senior pastor there. It was a rural community not far outside of Waco, Texas. It was planted by a group of men and women who desired deeply to imitate the early church. To my knowledge, the first sermon series, Jason Nolte, who was the founding senior pastor of Grace Bible Church, preached, was an expository series through this text, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And throughout the sermon series, and I had heard about this a number of times, I actually wasn't at the church during the series. I actually began attending the church as a member not long after the series, but I heard so much about it. Throughout the sermon series, he emphasized that what the church ought to do today is what the church used to do in the first century. In Jerusalem, recorded in Acts chapter 2. And this exhortation that Jason Nolte offered, that small congregation who at that time met just outside of town next to a group of turkey farms. Not many signs of civilization except for the turkey farms 
where the church met together. This exhortation was not unique to my previous church context. Many churches and pastors realize that functioning faithfully as a church does not ultimately demand novelties and cultural adaptations. Functioning faithfully as a church is not primarily or fundamentally about being innovative and even creative. Those things are helpful from time to time, but that's not fundamental to what it means to be and to function as a church. In fact, functioning faithfully as a church in the 21st century is less about innovation and more about retrieving and maintaining those truths and activities that characterized the early church. Well, for this reason, we look to passages, summary passages, in the book of Acts, like Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. We actually find a number of these summary passages. We'll find another one here in a couple of chapters, which will be there at some point in the near future. But here in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, we learn who we are and how we are to function as a church. And so this morning, we are continuing an exposition of this text by looking together at six characteristics of the first century church. Six characteristics of this first century church. And last Lord's Day, if you're with us a week ago, you know that we unpacked together, we identified and unpacked the first three characteristics. I'm going to give those to you, perhaps by way of review. And for some of you maybe who weren't here last week, you need to know and be caught up to speed on these first three characteristics. We said, first of all, we know and we notice that the early church was a spirit-filled community. The early church was a spirit-filled community. And this actually grows out of the entire context of Acts chapter 2. What's just happened in the book of Acts, the Spirit of God has fallen on the church uniquely as a kind of spirit baptism promised by Jesus in Acts chapter 1 verse 5. And so the early church was a spirit-filled community. Secondly, we noted that the early church was a steadfast community, and we saw this outlined in verse 42. They were devoting themselves. They were steadfastly committed to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And so the early church was known as a steadfast community. There are perhaps a number of things churches should and can do but the early church understood that these four things must characterize their life and ministry and their worship. And then third, we observed last Lord's Day, in addition to being a spirit-filled community and a steadfast community, third, the early church was a supernatural community. We learned that many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. And while there are some differences between who we are in the 21st century as a church, for example, we no longer have apostles, there is a tremendous amount of continuity. And that continuity is grounded in the reality of the presence of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who animated the early church is the Spirit who animates the contemporary church. And so we are, as they were, a supernatural community. So this morning, if you're taking notes, we are going to identify and unpack the final three characteristics that together help us build a portrait of what the early church was so that we might be able to imitate more effectively and faithfully 
what we find in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Well, let's begin by identifying the fourth characteristic. Fourth, the early church was a sacrificial community. The early church was a sacrificial community. Look down at the text with me, verses 45 and 46. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received, or we could translate this, they shared their food with glad and generous hearts. In some sense, what Luke is doing here in verses 45 and 46 is he's unpacking what he called fellowship back in verse 42. But more specifically, I want to draw your attention to the sacrificial posture that characterized the fellowship present in the early church. Notice they were selling what they owned. And these two descriptive words are translated in a number of different ways. Possessions, property is possible. It's possible here that, that Luke envisions they were, they were selling land that they owned, and they were also selling possessions that they owned. It's difficult to know, but the idea is clear enough. What they owned, they considered an instrument for generosity in the lives of other people. And so they were willing, as needs arose, to sell these things. I think I mentioned to you last Lord's Day that, that Luke uses the imperfect tense throughout this section. And what you need to know about the imperfect tense is it describes, in this case, it describes a previous activity that was somewhat characteristic, that was, that was progressive, that continued. In other words, this wasn't a, a one-time event. It wasn't even as if there were just a few members in the early church that actually were willing to sacrifice what they owned out of generosity for one another. No, no, this was a characteristic of the early church. They were consistently willing to sell what they had. And to give the proceeds away in order to provide and bless others. And you'll notice there that the qualifier is, of course, they were sharing as any had need. What Luke describes here is not a community in which there was no private ownership. It wasn't as if early Christians immediately sold everything that they had and it was placed in a kind of community pot and then distributed as the apostles saw need. No, no, it was as these needs arose. As, as needs surfaced, there would be various people throughout the congregation who would willingly say, you know what, I'll sell that piece of land that I have. I'll sell these possessions that I own in order to meet the need of this other brother or this other sister. There was still private ownership of property. In fact, when we get to Acts chapter five, we'll see this. Ananias and Sapphira are condemned actually in the presence of God. And we won't get too far ahead of ourselves, but they're condemned in the presence of God, not because they didn't give all of the proceeds of their sale to the church. In fact, Peter tells them very clearly, you could have kept back some of the proceeds. They, they're actually condemned after they sell their property and they give some of it away to the church and to those in need in the church. They claim that they're giving away all of it. They lie. And they're actually condemned for lying. What we do find in the text is Christians still own property. Christians still owned various possessions. 
And so what this is, is a voluntary generosity. This is a willingness among God's people who have been taken by the treasure who is Jesus Christ to give as needs surface. It's actually quite similar to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, where he writes these words, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see, brothers and sisters, for the early Christians, one of the chief purposes for wealth, one of the chief purposes, goals, for acquiring possessions was voluntary, sacrificial generosity. Wealthier members were taught that God had chosen to grant them wealth so that they could share with others. Paul actually offers this precise exhortation toward the end of his first epistle to Timothy where he encourages Timothy as a pastor in Ephesus to exhort the wealthier among the members of the church to be eager to share. And so in the early church, there was this understanding that God actually, if you, if you had more, God had chosen to give you more. And he had chosen to give you more so that you might sacrifice in order to bless other people. And I wonder, actually, I was, I was reflecting on this in my own life this previous week. I wonder how this is different from the ways in which we might view the acquisition of wealth. And what are the purposes for money? What are the purposes for a savings account? What are the purposes for ownership potentially of land or of a home, of vehicles and, and so forth. What, what is the purpose for a 401k or something comparable? Let me highlight a few potential purposes for you. And I want you to compare and contrast these purposes with what we find in the text. First of all, I think many of us view wealth as an instrument for comfort. Wealth is often viewed as a means for obtaining a more comfortable lifestyle. Perhaps you understand that wealth is obtained in order to retire comfortably. So we put money aside in a retirement account and, and the goal is someday we'll get to have that home on the lake and we won't have to worry about money. Maybe we'll have to no longer prepare our meals. Maybe I remember meeting a couple in California, sweet couple, such a sweet couple. And, and there was nothing inherently wrong with this, by the way. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But a sweet couple that, that my wife actually served at Olive Garden. We served together in Valencia, California when I was going through college. And, and um, they came in every single day for lunch. And I mean it, every single day. They ate lunch at Olive Garden. And then my understanding was they had breakfast scheduled at another place and perhaps dinner at another. She knew them better than I did. And when asked about this, she said, you know, she cooked her most of her life. And uh, she had stayed home and, and they'd raised their kids and she, she spent most of her life in the kitchen. And she said, I told my husband when we retire, I will never cook another meal as long as I live. <laughs> that was one of their goals for retirement. And they had succeeded. 
So perhaps you view wealth as an instrument for comfort. And again, by the way, none of these are intrinsically evil. In fact, they, they play a role. Another way we could view wealth, wealth is potentially an instrument for pleasure. So we can view wealth as an instrument for comfort. We can also view the acquisition of wealth as an instrument for pleasure and enjoyment. Maybe you view primarily the gaining of wealth for the purpose of enjoyment, of pleasure, of happiness. Maybe you love the idea of going on more trips, going and having fun outings, buying toys. You know, adults have toys as well, don't we? We don't stop playing with toys when we grow up. Toys just become a bit more expensive, usually. That's a possibility. So wealth as an instrument for comfort is a possibility. Wealth as an instrument for pleasure. Another one that I'd like to mention to you is wealth as a potential instrument for security. I think, I think I'm cooking in my own kitchen on this one. Wealth as a potential instrument for security. Perhaps you view wealth as, as a means for establishing personal or even family security. Maybe you want to put wealth aside and enough wealth aside so that your children, and you'll use language like this, don't have to worry about wealth. Or they don't have to worry about bills and about costs. This is oftentimes the case when someone attempts to build up their estate for their family to bless their children and their children's children. But this can also happen on a personal level. Now, going back to all of these, none of these purposes, let me be really clear, none of these purposes is inherently sinful. And they play a role. In fact, wealth is given in part to accomplish each of these things. However, if left alone and unchecked, each of these purposes will lack one of the primary purposes for acquiring wealth in Scripture and especially modeled in the early church, and that is sacrificial generosity. Don't miss this in the text. Save for retirement. Fine. Use money in part for pleasure and enjoyment. Absolutely. Every good gift comes from the Father. And he grants you the pleasures of this life even to remind you of the eternal pleasures you have, the superior pleasures you have in Christ. And there's some degree, isn't there, of security even, of being able to pay everything and to be debt-free. I'd encourage you, and indeed, to, to work for that end. And yet, don't lose sight of what fundamentally characterizes the view of wealth in the early church, sacrificial generosity. They gained wealth in order to give it away. In fact, I remember, and then I'll move on. I've spent far longer than I intended to spend here. William Willimon, who's actually in a different stream of Christianity than, than we are in, but but has been, to my knowledge, very faithful in many respects in the past. I don't know all that he believes today or even if he's still around, but I remember him writing on the seven deadly sins. He wrote a great book on the seven deadly sins. And in that book, he addressed the sin of greed. And he said one of the greatest practices and, and one of the greatest spiritual exercises that combats and even mortifies the sin of greed is very simple. 
giving things away. He said, every time I give money away, whether it's to my church or to another brother or sister or to a great need, every time I give it away, what I'm saying is this, money, you are not my security. You are not fundamentally my instrument for comfort, for peace, and for pleasure. I actually don't finally need you. And so he says, every time we give money away, we experience for a moment the liberation that God calls us to, out of greed and into the freedom of sacrificial generosity. And what is perfectly clear in Acts chapter two and beyond is that generosity characterizes a people who treasure Jesus Christ supremely. That's really the root. That's the foundation out of which generosity is built. The reason these early Christians were free to give their money away was because they had come to treasure the one who surrendered the treasures of heavenly glory for their eternal good, you see? Christ is our motivation for sacrificial generosity. As Paul writes in Philippians chapter two, verses six through eight, although Christ was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human nature, or human form rather, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so if Christ willingly gave up the glories of heaven in the incarnation and willingly gave up his own life, as the incarnate God for your eternal security, your eternal enjoyment and pleasure. If he did this, how much more ought we be willing to give up the temporary treasures of this life in service and sacrifice for others? By the way, friends, I should say this at this point. If you have not come to know in treasure what is true wealth, if you, don't have, if you don't have a sense of comfort in wealth that doesn't perish, if you don't have a sense of pleasure in, in an inheritance that will never fade away, and if you don't have an eternal security in the eternal generosity of Jesus Christ, I'd encourage you this morning to embrace Jesus Christ in faith. This This Jesus who lived in perfect obedience before the Father, who lived the life that we should have lived but couldn't and then died the death that we deserved under God's wrath and as a curse in our place for our sins. This same Jesus who was buried and who was raised in glorious power on the third day and then even as the book of Acts begins, ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool, waiting to return to claim everything that he has purchased for himself and for the Father. If you've not come to know and treasure the eternal wealth that Jesus Christ offers through a relationship with the Father, then we encourage you to do that even this morning. If you'd like to talk more about what it means to treasure Jesus Christ or to trust in Jesus Christ or to know Jesus Christ, perhaps you have questions about Jesus, we would love to talk with you. And so stay after service 
And as you leave this room, take a left. And on the right-hand side out there is that room I mentioned in the welcome called Crossroads. Go in there and have a conversation with one of our pastors. We would love to attempt to answer any questions you might have to come alongside of you and even you alongside of us as we seek to treasure what is true wealth in Jesus Christ. Well, in addition to being a sacrificial community, the early church was also a spreading community. It was a spreading community. Look with me again at verse 46 and then verse 47. Verses 46 and 47. Day by day, Luke writes, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, and notice having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I want you to see the connection here between what we just talked about and what we find here in these couple of verses concerning the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. There appears to be a relationship between the sacrificial love Christians showed one another on the one hand and the growth the Spirit of God caused in the early church. Don't miss that. These two things happen together. The church is sacrificing and giving generously, loving one another, and the Spirit of God is using all of that to add people to the church. This, of course, should not surprise us. Jesus exhorted us in this way in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. When he said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then verse 35, by this, by what? By your love for one another, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Shouldn't surprise us that this is the instrument often the Spirit of God uses to cause the church to spread, to cause the kingdom to grow. So what I'm suggesting, I am suggesting that the spread of the gospel is related to lives demonstrating the sacrificial love of the gospel. There is a relationship between the spread of the gospel and lives demonstrating the sacrificial love of the gospel. Francis Schaeffer, who is now with the Lord, Francis Schaeffer, uh, in his short book, The Mark of the Christian, if you've not read that, I'd commend it to you. The Mark of the Christian, called love for one another in the body of Christ, I love this language, the final apologetic for our faith. In other words, he said that love is the ultimate or supreme defense for the truth of Christianity. He wrote these words, We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. End quote. How about us, church family? How about you, Christian? Does your life Not perfectly, right? You cannot provide 
a perfect example of obedience for a watching world. You can preach a perfect Savior, but the messenger bringing the message will never be perfect this side of resurrection. But by God's grace, what you can provide, what you can provide is a life that is characterized by faithfulness. And that's the question for us even now as we reflect on this text. Does my life reflect faithfully the gospel that I preach to other people? In other words, is the love manifested supremely in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that love apparent in the way in which I interact with other people around me? And in particular with those who are members in the body of Christ. Am I known to be someone who loves others as Christ loved me? Now in this emphasis on the vital connection between a spreading community on the one hand and a sacrificial community on the other, I don't want to lose sight of something. There's a, there's a connection here and, and a vital connection, I believe. The Spirit of God uses the transformation that he provides in the lives of God's people as a testimony or an apologetic to the truthfulness of the gospel. But in this connection, I don't want us to lose sight that Christianity spreads ultimately through the sovereign work of the Lord adding people to the kingdom. Some have said this, evangelism on the one hand is our work, that is sharing the gospel with other people. Conversion is the work of the Spirit of God. And that indeed is a fact. And we see that even in the text. Evangelism is a futile task if God doesn't act to revive dead sinners. In fact, J.I. Packer, in his book Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, has reminded us, The sovereignty of God gives us our only hope of success in evangelism. By the way, I'd encourage you, we have this book in our bookstore, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. I I would submit it to you as one of the better books on understanding that God's sovereignty actually motivates us to go with the gospel. And so you can go find our bookstore after service it's open as you leave one of these One of these double doors, take a right, and our bookstore out there is just to the left, tucked away. It's a small bookstore. We keep a limited number of books in there. In fact, it just so happens, I may quote another one in our bookstore in just a moment. I'm quoting a couple of them this morning. But J.I. Packer has it right, and we see it here in the text. It is God's sovereignty that actually motivates and gives hope for success in evangelism. And this is what we see in verse 47. It was the Lord who added to their number day by day. Peter wasn't adding. James and John weren't adding to their number. Andrew was not adding to their number. No, no, the Spirit of God was the one adding to the number of early Christians day by day, those who were being saved. Finally, finally this morning, in addition to a sacrificial community and a spreading community, we find here that the early church was a saved community. The early church was a saved community. Look again at the final sentence of verse 47. So the second part of verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being what? Saved. The church consists of people who were saved. Saved from what? Saved from sin. 
Safe from death, finally. Safe from eternal punishment under God's wrath. Every member of the body of Christ shares this in common. We are sinners rescued by God's grace. And so the early church was no different. The early church was comprised of people who were rescued by the work of God through Christ and applied by the Spirit of God. Listen to how Paul describes the purpose for which Jesus came into the world in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. And when he says something like that, he typically is going to quote something that is mentioned more widely in Christian circles. So this saying that I'm about to write to you, Timothy, and you're going to pass on, of course, consistently to the church of Ephesus, this saying is trustworthy. And it deserves full acceptance. And then he says this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul goes on to say, among whom I am chief. I am the worst. This recognition, as I reflect on this, this recognition that we are saved exclusively by God's grace in Christ cultivates in us certain responses and virtues. Let me give you a couple of these. When we recognize that we are in a right relationship with God the Father through Christ by the Spirit, not on account of anything that we have done, not on account of any merit that we offer, in our hands no price we bring, simply to the cross we cling. When we realize that reality, when we come to grips with it and meditate on it, there are a couple of virtues, I think, that are cultivated in our lives. Let me mention them to you. First of all, this recognition cultivates humility. A recognition that I am here exclusively on account of the grace of God in Christ that anything I may come close to understanding about who God is is the result of God's work in me and God's work for me through Christ, not the result of my work. This cultivates humility. Pride, you see, flies in the face of the gospel. And by pride, I mean the vice of thinking more highly of ourselves than we should think. I'm using Paul's definition in Romans 12. Thinking more highly of ourselves than we should think. Don't make the mistake that I think we often make, at least I do, as a Christian, the mistake of confusing humility for self-deprecation. Or the mistake of confusing humility for self-loathing. As if the truly humble person is the one who refuses to accept a compliment and persists in speaking to others about how bad he really is. Now I want to quote C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's been said, actually, I think it was Tim Keller, when you don't, Adam Holland, Pastor Adam Holland shared this with me recently. When you uh, have not had as much time to study your sermon as you like to have had, um, you can tell that's the case because you quote C.S. Lewis more frequently. <laughs> Maybe that's the case, I don't know. That's telling about Keller's sermons, perhaps. But Lewis is well worth quoting and well worth reading. But he writes this in Mere Christianity, which is the other book I said I was going to mention to you in our bookstore. If you've not read Mere Christianity, you need to read it. If you don't read, then get the audio version. Listen to it. 
Not because everything he says in the book is true. I would take issue with some of what he says. But remember, I can't say this enough. I would take issue with some of what I say. (laughs) He's well worth listening to. Well, Lewis describes the humble man in his book, Mere Christianity. And here's what he says. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably, now now get this, follow Lewis here, probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. He listens. Lewis continues, if you dislike him, It will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. And then this final descriptive piece, he will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. What a description of the man or the woman taken by the gospel, meditating on the gospel, And then as a result, and going back to something Tim Keller actually did say, he wrote a little pamphlet about it. As a result, does not fall prey to self-deprecation. I'm so bad. Or refusing to accept compliments. No, no. As a result, experiences a kind of self-forgetfulness. A lack of awareness of self. And an acute awareness of God in Christ and of others. That's humility. And I think it was Edwards that said something like this, and I, if this resonates with me. Maybe it wasn't Edwards. If he didn't say it, he should have said it. When I describe humility, it, it feels like a distant land that I've never visited. But I'm eager to get there by God's grace. So meditating on the reality that we have been saved by God's grace alone in Christ cultivates this virtue. Humility. And then secondly, and we'll close with this. Secondly, meditating on the reality that we are saved by God's grace in Christ alone as members of the body of Christ cultivates zeal for the lost. It cultivates zeal for the lost. When I know that I am here Because God has reached down in eternal kindness and snatched me from the fire, as it were. I want others to experience the same joy of coming into a right relationship with God through Christ. This is why, by the way, this is why young Christians often start sharing the gospel, even when they don't quite understand how to articulate it. I look back and I think the zeal that I experienced when I first came to know Jesus Christ later in high school, you could not shut me up about Jesus. And I remember, I remember being in high school, and this is not everybody's experience, okay? For many, for many of us, even in this room, we came to know Jesus Christ through a process of being raised in a Christian home. And it's difficult for us to pinpoint the moment when the Spirit of God regenerated us. And that's okay, What matters is not that you can look back on a moment. What matters is that today you're trusting in Jesus Christ. 
But in my case, I came to know Jesus Christ. And I remember, I remember never wanting to go anywhere without this. And so by definition, I suppose I became a kind of Bible thumper. You know, you've heard, you've heard of this description. And I did, and I carried it wherever I went. And at that time, of course, it was the King James Bible. Some of you were like, amen, now he's preaching. You haven't listened to a word I've said until now I said it. I was carrying the word of God. So I carried the King James around. And, and uh, I remember in between classes, and I remember... At times, you know, I was misguided, certainly, certainly. And I said things I, I shouldn't have said and I needed more instruction, but I was zealous. Why? Because I'd come to realize I was rescued by grace and I wanted others to experience the same rescue. Church, we should feed that kind of zeal Instruct it, sure. And, and others in the church did. You know, they took me under their wing. I remember one brother grabbing me and saying, yeah, you're extremely zealous and I don't want to do anything to extinguish it. But maybe I can help you direct that zeal. And he did a good job. I wasn't, I wasn't discouraged by the men who discipled me. But we ought to feed that zeal. And if I can just be frank, for those of us who have been Christians for a while, we ought to be convicted by that zeal. Every single time someone comes to know Jesus Christ and you see a joy in them that you maybe haven't experienced for a while, that is a kindness of the Lord to call you back to your first love. God mercifully does this in the body of Christ, doesn't he? He places people in front of us who are still wet behind the ears as Christians. And they may not be able to articulate the faith in the way that a 20-year-old Christian, someone who's been a Christian for 20 years, should be able to articulate. And they may misstep and say some things they shouldn't say, but their passion and their zeal to share the gospel with anyone breathing, they'd preach to a tree if they thought the tree would listen. That's how I felt. It convicts the rest of us and calls us back to that same level of zeal now with increased maturity. How much more effective might the church be if we listened to those younger Christians and observed their zeal? But this meditation about the gospel of grace, this meditation on that wonderful doctrine that the reformers referred to, at least now we describe as grace alone, saved by grace alone, alone in Christ alone. Meditation here cultivates zeal for the lost. I remember reading some time ago a saying that was attributed to John Bradford that upon seeing a group of prisoners led to execution, he is described as saying this, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. That's how we view a world perishing. And it drives us to take the gospel because it's the gospel that is the only source of their lasting hope. We talked about wealth earlier. It's the gospel that is the only source of lasting wealth and inheritance in Christ. This is, by the way, what we're seeking to do in part next weekend through our GO conference. This is why you need to come.
This is why you need to rearrange your schedules because we need to rekindle by God's grace the zeal we once had to go with the gospel, to preach Christ to anyone and everyone who will listen. Amen. Well, we've seen, I should wrap up. I told you I was wrapping up and I was picked on last week by one of our younger members. I won't tell you who it was. He was right. He said, Pastor Perry, you closed five times this morning. I said, yes, I did. I think I only closed twice, twice this morning. We've seen over the past two weeks, observing that the early church was first a spirit-filled community going all the way to last week. The early church was a spirit-filled community. Secondly, the early church was a steadfast community. Third, the early church was a supernatural community. Fourth, the early church was a sacrificial community. Sorry, sacrificial community. Fifth, the early church was a spreading community by God's grace. And then finally, sixth, in this portrait of the early church, the early church was a saved, a saved community. Now what the church was then, I want to close with this, what the church was then, by God's grace, we are today. We are today. Our desire is that we would more and more function according to who we already are in Christ. And this is only possible. It's only possible through the work of the Spirit of God among us and through us, the work of God's grace that began. That moment we trusted in Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God was making us alive and continues to the present. So our prayer, borrowing from a couple of songwriters today in their song, I believe it's called, O Church, Arise. Our prayer is this. So Spirit, come. Put strength in every stride. Give grace for every hurdle that we, the church, may run with faith to win the prize of a servant good and faithful. As saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace. We hear their calls and hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. Amen. Let's pray together. This is our prayer, Father. And we recognize this morning that unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor to build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord keeps watch over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. We ask you according to your promises this morning, as members of your church, on account of the work of your grace through Christ, continue the work you have begun and cause us in your mercy to function according to who we really are, the church of Jesus Christ. In his name and for his glory, we pray together. And all God's people said, amen. amen.